This episode of the Project Human podcast is with John Clayton, where we discuss psychological flexibility. What does that actually mean? Well, my understanding of it is that it's like having a set of tools and frameworks for dealing with setbacks and challenges. This one's quite information dense, and to really get the most out of it and let the information sink in, you might want to listen to it a few times to really understand how you can apply this information in your own life. So grab a notebook and a pen and enjoy this podcast with John Clayton. Thanks for joining me uh, on this call from the other side of the world. I know it's very early for you, so thanks for making the time. Um, Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into this subject of psychological flexibility. Um, Perhaps you can share some ideas with uh, how we can learn to develop that. Um, but before we go too much into that subject, uh, perhaps you could start with um, a bit of your own background and um, the type of work that you do. Absolutely. And I appreciate you having me on as well. It's an exciting opportunity to talk through the things you're passionate about. But for myself, I would say um, I've got a background in rugby league as one thing. And what happened was I was semi-professional, went to an NRL club, had a bit of an opportunity and found that for me, there was a, I wanted to achieve at high levels, but I found that my mind sort of got in the way when I wanted to like push through, apply effort. I was not a talented player, by the way. I was a tall, lanky kid that from the bush that sort of didn't have that many skills, but tried really hard. So that was my application in rugby league. It was like effort was my thing. And once I got to the, the upper levels, that effort just didn't reflect in – I started – I think it was ego and things like that started to show up a bit. And I think there's a lot of players that sort of hit that level and find some struggles in their mind. But for me, the there was constraints internally that showed up once I was at that level that didn't let me progress to the next level. And so I went through. I kept trying till about 24. And for me, that was when I went – I'm, and a lot of guys probably go into strength world, but for me, I went, if I had had this support in psychology, then things might have been different. And that's where I went and did my degree in psychology and I've uh, worked with in the mental health field for over the last decade and working with people with complex mental health, but also last few years been working into performance psychology and working with people to get out of their own way, perform at a high level, flow states, um, yeah, executive function, all these sorts of things are very important. But yeah, and then probably the niching down bit has been that I've found a model called acceptance and commitment therapy in which you touched on psychological flexibility. So although it's an evidence-based system, it's probably my experience of it that has really shown the effectiveness. I've, I've played with it enough to go, these are the, the best tools that I like. These are the things that will develop it. And the thing I really enjoy is that psychological flexibility is a is a meta skill. It it sits above other skills. So you can you can be have different things you want to do with your life. You can have different goals, values, all this sort of stuff. But the meta skills sit above and support you at that level. So it's never getting in the way of whatever you want to do. It just it works across contexts. But I can delve more into that. But my background absolutely is learning it myself and then having the application and then trying to real world test it as I go. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So did you say acceptance and commitment? 
therapy. Did I get that? Did I catch that right? Yeah. Uh, so yes, is that, is that like uh, an umbrella term that would include psychological flexibility? Could you uh, explain that a little for me? Absolutely, man. So acceptance and commitment therapy is the, the title for the, the therapy. If I was to take a step back, the way that they developed the model for acceptance and commitment therapy was there's a huge body of research on this stuff called relational frame theory. And what they found was that, and this is the interesting part, stick with me because I know it's a bit wordy, is that language forms the basis for thought in humans. And what they found was that relational frames, so two words, so if you think of tree, the word tree, and you, it's not, doesn't mean anything unless it's attached to the physical image of a tree or all the things you, so one frame would be the word tree, language, is attached to leaves, the picture of a tree, green, all these sorts of things. What humans do, though, is we make frames without being told something directly. So we will develop a frame where we look at um, uh, someone, my mum drove her car into a tree, and then we attach additional frames like tree equals danger or tree equals uh, uncertainty or tree equals falling, whatever it is. And that sounds arbitrary, but in the real world, what happens is you make these additional frames as a human being because it's keeping you safe. And we might look at judge someone externally like they they missed and their parents got angry with them. That means if you make a mistake, you are bad or a bad kid. So these frames get made without us even thinking about it. And that's part of the conditioning that we see in the world and society is that people have these frames that they make where they they become more and more rigid and less willing to expose their faults and try and, and experience challenge because they've made all these experiences where they see how much it sucks for other people to experience failure. So relational frames are like, what happens if you just let everything play out? If someone's in a perfect environment, awesome. If you're, you're not as lucky, which, you know, a lot of us are brought, brought up in working class families, parents doing the best they can, probably don't have all the information that they need. You sort of, you, your environment just plays out the way it plays out and you're not intentional. It just, you just become a repeated cycle of the last generation in a lot of cases. So psychological flexibility is the approach of what happens if you notice your mind for what it is and you set direction based on your values. So there's probably the three parts to that. Um, rigidity is the opposite end, and that's a video I'm working on at the moment is to try and explain a bit of what rigidity looks like. But on the, the flexible side, it's really if you're able to take action, so things we can see you do physically with your arms, face, voice, all that sort of stuff, then and it's based on things that are deeply meaningful to you, so core values, then you are psychologically flexible. That's pretty much the definition. You're not attached to your internal mind, your thoughts, your feelings, um, any experiences internally. And if we would use the example, and you said stories are probably good for that, it's, um, we're talking about Volkanovsky as an example. If he, there was one with um, Ariel Hawani where he was talking about waking up early for an interview and Volk never complains. But when you watch a lot of fighters, they do you know, let you know that they're doing you a favor and all that sort of stuff. But their values might not be. They might be like, I'm tough or I'm generous or whatever else. These are core values, but they're not acting on that because they're uncomfortable in the moment. So if we're acting on our core values, we're aligned with that deeper person we want to be. And we can turn up in any space like that, even when it's hard. But it can be, that's the challenge. Psychological flexibility is tougher the less resources we have, but that's when we really need to use it most. 
Yeah, I've been uh, looking at some of your online content and that uh, Volkanovsky video stood out particularly. Um, I think you outlined a six-step kind of framework for building um, psychological flexibility. Uh, as far as I remember, the first one was about committing to action. Um, could you walk me through what those are from a high level and then maybe we can take a closer look at some of those aspects? Um, yeah, absolutely. I can. So it's, it's more of a... They call it the hexaflex. So it's a six facets of a diamond. And the reason that's important is because it's not a step-by-step process. You, We probably, when I work with someone one-on-one, I might step it out with for them. But that's more for simplicity and getting people into the flow of how to progress this stuff. But if you look at it as a, a diamond of six skills, in the middle is psychological flexibility. And you only develop it by having all six skills. But luckily, they cross over a fair bit. Um <coughs> So if I was to, I've touched on two, committed action and values are two of the, the six skills. So I think that's one of the key things is that a lot of psychological uh, application can be very theoretical, cognitive, out of the real world. The key of this is to do things. If you're not doing things, then you're not actually being flexible. So it's never about changing the way you think just so you can be at home and be like, I'm more comfortable sitting at home and being passive and not getting things done. Action is the end goal. Values are super, super important. And I find, especially with people that are high achievers, really like getting to values because they do things, but they often go, I I feel this sense of importance about this, but I don't understand the deeper. So values are really just dropping down that level, finding the the leading principles that guide your behavior at the moment. Um, An interesting fact on values that I think people probably don't realize is when you have anger, guilt, you get annoyed at other people. A lot of these things are either someone's breaching your values or you're breaching your own values. And these are really good cues to be able to figure out when you're feeling these emotions, what what is your mind trying to tell you? What's important to you that's deeper? Anger is a great one. When we, we get angry at other people of like, they're wasting my time. You're like, okay, what's the deeper value for me? Is it efficiency? Is it um, people valuing me, you know, personal space, time, all these sorts of things. So leading leading principles as values. So that's the two parts of the hexaflex. The next ones are uh, about dropping dropping in and, and taking notice. So your very traditional mindfulness skill we call contact with the present moment. And that's a very interesting one. Um, mindfulness is such a buzzword. I try and avoid, I actually don't explicitly go through this skill unless people are really needing it, but I more do it passively. So if we were working together, I might say to you, what can you notice right now? And, you know, we might do a breath, notice the breath, something like that. But contact with the present moment is really about avoiding that over-identification with the past, rumination and overthinking what's happened or the over-predicting of the future. So either one of those is not going to be helpful right now to take action valued action. So we, we look at contacting the present moment so that we're available in this in this moment to, to do whatever is necessary. I'd say one of the risks here is that people get overwhelmed because they end up not in the current space. If they're thinking of something in the future, then that all of a sudden becomes overwhelming because it's this huge thing that hasn't happened and it gets played out. Whereas if you're in the current moment, you're only experiencing what's currently happening and none of that is prediction. So very important skill. The other one about the current moment is the. Um, this is probably the most difficult skill 
and do most difficult to understand. I'm actually working on a video to explain this one. It's called the observing self. And this, this is a very obscure one. So hopefully if I don't explain this one, let me know and I can give a bit more detail. But um, the idea is that if I was to turn off the light right now and we were to shine a light, where the light hits is what the mind sees. So your thoughts, your feelings, everything is like a, the, where the light's hitting. So you're seeing whatever you see, you're making meaning, but the observing self is the beam, is the light for where the light comes from. So if you look into your own mind and I said, you know, we're on a podcast and we're having a chat, there's a part of your mind that observes that we're on a podcast and having a chat and that is constantly monitoring your own thoughts, like a, as you predict, like, oh, I probably need to, you know, check the volume or do whatever else we're doing. It, that's that's the part of the mind we call the observing self. And building that skill of distance from the mind helps us be more flexible. It, it, we often use like a like a piece of paper or a hand to show, like if someone's got a hand really, really close, they're very fixed, like they're very stuck and they have no space to see what's happening. Whereas if they can move that away or put the hand down on their lap, nothing's changed, but they're able to see their mind for what it is and see the processes playing out. And the last two skills are probably the most applicable skills that I teach people is that when the mind does become a problem, how can you use acceptance, which is for emotions, sensations, and feelings. And discomfort is a common one. Boredom, again, anger, anything along those lines. And the most number one skill I teach, I think it's the most efficient, is expansion. So it's it's if you know anything about um, anthropomorphizing, it's um it's finding where the emotion sits and turning it into something physical rather than something ethereal and you know unknown. So you find the emotion, you give it hard edges. It might be sitting in your chest. You give it um, like, is it is solid? Is it a gas? What color is it? You get you just make it really real. And then you breathe around that emotion. And we call it a bit surfing the urge under acceptance. Is like, this is going to go in three minutes, 20 minutes at most. Like the average is about three. Can you sit with this emotion and then take action? If you get hooked, then you've, and you act in a way that's not aligned with the person you want to be, that's when you're less flexible. And then the final skill is diffusion. It's just about thoughts. Um, and I love this one because it doesn't work great when you're talking about it in writing, but it's great when we do it in with someone in person is, uh, it's called Titchener's repetition. Um, and as a kid, you've probably done this before where your friend goes, um, say orange or say elbow 30 times and you, you keep repeating the word. And then all of a sudden it's just these weird sounds coming out of your mouth and you're like, what's going on here? Like what's happened to this word? And it's a, it's a tool called Titchener's Repetition. And what they found was that we're talking about relational frames before. The relational frame for orange is attached to all its meaning. But if you repeat orange 30 times, it becomes a sound again and you lose the frames that are related to it. So with thoughts, if you've got a thought, and these are some of the ones that people come in with, like, I'm hopeless, I'm a failure. These are like very sticky thoughts that some people get stuck with. And that is like a huge emotion that comes with that and it gets very sticky and they have no space to see that thought. If we then just go, I notice I'm having the thought or um, I'm having that story about being a failure, like if you give that space, then you start to lose the frames that are attached to that and it makes it less sticky. No thought is inherently bad, but we just we work with them when they stop you taking valued action.
So it always comes back to action related to your values and the rest of it is just a framework to, to teach you those skills. Hmm. Okay. So uh, you mentioned staying present and uh, you said that you don't particularly like the word mindfulness or you don't tend to use it yourself. Yeah. Um, so if you're working with somebody and you're trying to develop, develop this aspect with them of the skill of staying present, um, mm-hmm. how might that actually look? Does it look like a mindfulness meditation practice under a, a different name or yeah, how does that work? Absolutely. Man. So there's the levels to that one probably in session is dropping anchor or a, a very deliberate mindfulness skill at the start of session. I think if you, if anyone's here is a watching as a coach and I know we do a bit of that work ourselves, if you haven't got someone present, then you're not going to get the value out of them. They're not going to remember. They're not going to engage in skills. So being having people in in your session with you is super important. So I like to start with at least some sort of, you know, breath awareness or um, what can you notice, like environmental scan, something that makes them drop into their body, be present in their mind, and, and then work with me and see how things are going. So that's probably one. The formal practices, I do formal practices of mindfulness. I don't always push it because it's not everyone's cup of tea and it depends on where your skills at. Um, but I very much believe that the mind needs to be trained in that aspect as well. And if someone's at a performance arena, you're, you're leaving money on the table. You're leaving things untapped. If you're not doing formal mindfulness practice, uh, I would recommend breath work like breath related mindfulness as an easy accessible skill. I'm, I'd probably move the other direction. I love biofeedback meditation. So I love to see like a visualization, see my heart rate variability, know that I'm having an impact on my body. I would say for anyone that's serious about mindfulness and and probably has a bit more of that type A, you know, really wants likes performance, you might need biofeedback. It's a great way to access that skill. And I've worked with athletes and used it. And you'd be very surprised that some people I'm like, um, their first time ever meditating and their high performance athletes are already like getting to these zones without it because they're optimal performance because they've trained it in other ways. So it's, it's not like formal practices are essential, but I do recommend them, especially if you, you can always get better. And the final thing is if you wanted a skill that something like I give takeaways as well, you can be mindful at any time. Like right now we're trying to be mindful with each other and listen and, and engage, but I might do something like when you're washing the dishes tonight, try and make it a mindfulness practice. Let's put your hands in the sink, feel the soap on your fingers. What's the dish feel like? Um, when you put it up, what noise does it make? You know, all of these things, you have opportunities a thousand times a day to be present in the current moment. And it's not common in our society to actually want to be present. It's like, you know, listen to a podcast as you do that so that you get that distraction. Um, when you, you go for a run, uh, play music or uh, watch a TV show, there's always distractions are everywhere. So it's training mindfulness is probably an essential skill, but it's one where I don't make it, I don't always make it um, explicit because it's it's so attached to words now like religion or it's attached to like new age like people are, oh, everyone wants to be mindful. And I feel like that loading makes it a bit harder to get people started. Whereas I'd rather be like, do you want to be here with me right now? Well, these are the things we do. Yeah, yeah, I see. So uh, if sitting cross-legged on the floor 
food is not for you. There's a, there's other ways to to go about this. So the um, the biofeedback, I've heard a little about this. So my understanding is that you'd have some kind of vis- visual representation. You've got some kind of sensor connected to you, and mm-hmm. you're, I guess, monitoring how that visual representation changes. How how does this work? Absolutely, something along and those lines. Yeah, and I'm not an expert in the biofeedback space, but I do. I utilize it. I'm up to about 2,000 sessions I've done myself over the last five years. So I, I'm not an expert, but I'm a very experienced practitioner. But yes, you're completely right. It's heart rate variability is the change in in your heart rate over time. So even though you get like a, this is my average heart rate, yeah, heart rate actually goes like like a accelerator and a brake. It goes up and down based on sympathetic and then parasympathetic is the brakes. And if someone's in stress state, and I can see this, I can clap next to someone's head and or click and distract them, and you can see their heart rate goes like this, skitter, skitter, skitter. And I, if um, talking about the rugby league metaphors, I always say to my players when I'm working with them, it's a bit like when you're going to make a tackle, you do short steps, and you get really like short because you want to react. If someone changes direction, you can react really quickly. And with the heart rate, the heart rate does these little skitters because it's getting ready for danger. It's getting ready for reaction. It's in a stress state. That's pretty much what it is. It's ready to respond. And I like the um, the other one is the waves. So it's the slow, deep. That's the what you're aiming for. So when we breathe in the, for that, we, we try and get to that state. And, yeah, if you breathe just long and deep, it'll work. But if you do a mindfulness at the same time, it's even better. Mm, I see. So maybe a bit of a tangent and uh, tell me if this is not really your field, but – I use heart rate variability in uh, most mornings to see um, if I'm well rested and I use it as an indicator for how much physical exertion I'm going to do that day. I don't always pay attention to it. If I'm feeling good and the uh, HRV says take an easy day, I might ignore it. Um, (laughs) So can we in the very short term with um, breathing or with mindfulness uh, significantly alter uh, our, our, our HRV. So, for example, if I looked at my app in the morning and it's saying um, your heart rate variability is outside your normal range, uh, limit your in- intensity today, could I um, do some kind of breathing or exercises that would um, have a significant effect on that over the day? Absolutely. And even worse than that, you can hack it and put your reading off. I think it's well known in the literature that they try not to teach people too many of these ways because if if you're doing a scientific study where you want to repeat it and someone comes in and they do a breath work while the recording's happening happening it can look like they're ready to train and that that's and that's one of the challenges of heart rate variability i would say it's, it's an awesome tool but it probably should be combined with you going how do i feel today like your rpe what's how hard did i work yesterday did i get good sleep um how many miles have i done this week probably GPS tracking and distance is a good one and combine those data points and go, okay, now I need a rest. And that's probably good that you ignore it. You're like, I feel fine. I'm ready to go. So heart rate availability isn't like a perfect science, but yes, in a day there is, if you look at, so if you had a pool of resource and you get stressed from work, you exercise, and these are all different stresses, but the body responds to the same to physical, emotional, and chemical stress. So if we look at that as a pool, and all of them react in the same pool, then anything you do, if you, you know, we go out and have a couple of wines, we didn't get great sleep, all of these are draining the pool. 
And the great thing about mindfulness and heart rate variability and any of these sorts of trainings is that in a time when you're stressed, you, you flip it and then you create a little resonance frequency, which lasts for a period of time after that where you're less stressed. So in comparison to a day where you didn't do it and a day where you did do it, you've had this period of time from here to here where you've had much more refilling and less draining for that period of time. So absolutely, you could refill your cup and have more energy by the next day, but it's it's very much context-based. Your experience, like if you ran a marathon, it's less likely to have an impact from one day to the next, but over time, it accumulates. Mm, I see, yeah. So, yeah, so I think, as you said, if you're using it as a, a daily um, measure of where you are, then, yeah, you need to be fairly um systematic with it do it at the same time and not yeah yeah not cheat yourself with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah okay um yeah going back to one of the first things that you mentioned was uh, committed action mm-hmm. um one of the um the, the six elements of uh, psychological psychological flexibility so i think there's in my experience there's a couple of um problems people probably have um mm-hmm. with this i think there's the nature of commitment itself so sticking to something once it's become difficult or perhaps boring and not being uh, led off in another direction by something that appeals a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also I think perhaps when you're making a commitment to uh, whatever your goal is, is um, committing to something that's of the right level of uh, difficulty, the right level of challenge. Um, mm-hmm. So if I set myself a goal that I, I want to build a rocket that's going to fly to the moon by next Saturday. Mm-hmm. There's a fair chance I'm going to be frustrated by Friday. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, do you work with people to help them kind of choose appropriate goals? Is mm-hmm. that a, a part of what you would do? For sure. And I've been, I've had a change in this space over time. So, I was very much anti goals for a while. Oh, sorry. I'll take even further step back. When I was 16, I was in the paper and I had this article around making all the rep teams in footy and it was this, I had this huge write-up around goal setting. And I said, they were like, how did you achieve you do all this stuff this year? And I was like, me and my brother, we wrote down our goals and then we achieved our goals. And so for years, I was like very much a goals are the way to go. Set your goals and you get there. You know, like the whole, you know, the secret. If you put it out there, the intention takes care of itself, that sort of stuff. And... The point I've gotten to is to realize that goals are really just putting a signpost in the future and saying, this is where we want to get to. And we often try and get the motivation that drives us towards that. And then once that motivation dies off, we go, that goal mustn't be very important anymore or it's it's out of my reach. And as you said, if you make it even unrealistic, that, that motivation will die even quicker as soon as you get close to that goal. And we've all had this experience and I still have it when I'm going, okay, I'm going to do seven videos this week. That was unrealistic based on the context of my life and getting kids ready and doing all that type of thing. So goal setting, my big shift has been I love project management and I don't know if it's a common thing in some of the communities we're in, but I found I really enjoyed, I I stepped it out and experienced with project management and then I got to this model called Agile and Scrum. And the beautiful thing about this is that it has some really deep um, psychological underpinnings. So I've found the combination of the work I do in psychology plus some project management helps people actually turn goals into like a realistic thing. So this is the first step is estimating. 
people are really, really bad at estimating how hard or how long something will take to get done. And so that's the problem with goals. It's like in three months, I'm going to get this done. It's like that could take you 12 months. It could take you two years. You don't actually know until you start doing it. Your estimation gets a lot better. So once you, you, you might be like, it's going to be like this, but it's actually like this. So once you get started, you can estimate a lot better. So what we, we would do is we would do systems that we check in, you know, the old, you fall to the level of your systems. So if people are checking in with you regularly, we go, okay, you fell off. Do we need to realign the, the point? Do we need to add more support? Do we need a mentor? How are we, like friction's a big one. A lot of people will be like, okay, I'm going to achieve this. But then they're like, I, I need to go for a run every day. But my shoes are at the back door and uh, it's cold outside. And yeah, I stayed up late. Like, how are you making it harder on yourself to actually achieve this? Let's remove some of that friction. So goal setting, I think, is awesome now. I don't actually prevent it, but I'd probably set it more of a like, this is the signpost in the future. Values are the process that we get there on. And each day, how can we look at our values and keep ramping up our velocity towards that goal would be the challenges that I find working with people. Mm. Yeah, I've... Um worked with quite a few people who work in the tech world and uh, these terms uh, agile and scrum um i've come yeah come across them um but not really had a, an understanding of what it was how did you stumble across it i was lucky in the mental health field we were developing contracts so i, I went into a tangent role for a bit where we developed contracts working with mental health and some of it was software based and we we're very lucky to have a few people in using agile and scrum and it's amazing the things that they can produce in a short period of time if you you keep people accountable to each other if you keep i think the, the three principles are transparency inspection and adaption so show your work look at it regularly and make sure you're reflecting and adaption is same as committed action do it like unless it's being done then it's just theoretical again so that yeah that's been my experience uh, what what about yourself have you you picked up much um, that you'd like to use only only a little um one one thing that stood out was uh, this idea of sprints so working in mm -hmm. sprints um so yeah really breaking things down to very small goals things that you're going to do perhaps in 20 20 minutes you've probably heard of the pomodoro um method so I, I guess it's probably quite similar to that setting yourself a very short term 20 25 minute target where you, you focus on something and then take five minutes where you, you do something different, um, get away from your screen. If you're working on a screen, do something physical. I think a lot of us in our community, we do, we'll do physical things, you know, mixed in mm -hmm. the day, uh, things like juggling, um, where you, you're using your brain in a different way. And it does, um, it does kind of refresh your mind so that when you come back to the task, mm. um, you feel more, much more refreshed than if you just, scrolled through some social media or had some other kind of digital stimulation. Um, mm. Yeah. So I, I found that, found that to be pretty useful. Absolutely. Yeah. Popular is a cool one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you've, when you've got a long day of uh, screen time, it's just good to get those movement breaks in as, as much as possible, I think. <laughs> Especially if you come from a background of um, doing, you know, a lot of sport or physical work. So many of yeah. us now spend a lot of time doing this, to communicating on screens, even doing our coaching sessions virtually. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think just maintaining that movement throughout the day is really useful for me.
Absolutely. Hmm. So um, in your process of uh, learning these skills and techniques yourself, um, have you had any um, like particular mentors or influences that have really stood out for you? Um, probably should reference my partner has been an amazing support. She's a um, mental health social worker. And social work, like doing my psychology stuff has been awesome. But I think psychology gets very narrow sometimes, where social workers look very big. <laughs> they look at the systems that, that create the challenges. So I think sometimes it's great being able to talk to her and being like, this is what I'm thinking. She's like, think about the bigger level. What's happening at that? So we have great conversations. We, it's, it's amazing to have someone that's passionate about the same thing as you so you can talk through it. But for mentors, absolutely. I've had, um, I'm actually wearing one of my mentor's shirts at the moment, Grab Life by the Balls. It's a charity that one of the, one of my good mates works. Um, but there's another guy, I work, Aaron Williams, that um, does a thing called Mindstar. So he was a great mentor. Um, again, he did a program called the Man Program. So all the he's he uses a very similar model to myself. But all of these guys, I sort of you take what you can from them. When you someone's ahead of you, you sort of look and see what skills do they use, how do they communicate, how do they. Definitely, you take what you can with mentors. In the project management space, it was more. Learning from like people's systems is probably wasn't an individual, but learning from their systems and picking up what you can. But yeah, there've been some of the big ones. Probably the other ones are people. You probably we all have these, but people who are held space for you when things were hard, and like gave you that opportunity and believed in you. That's what I'd like to give as a base level of like. I believe in your success. I can see what's going to work for you. You're you've got a path ahead. And hold space for you to figure that out. I'm not the expert in you. I'm, I'll help you with the system, the process. So that would be that would be some of the big mentoring learnings I've had. Mm. Yeah, I imagine it. It's constant learning. There's always going to be more um, more skills that you can add to your skill set for working with people. Um, mm. Is there anything at the moment that you're particularly focused on or excited to learn? Any new developments in the field? It's, it's not a new development in the field, but it's a new development for me. Has been self compassion. We had a we had a quick chat the other day on a call about this, but I because I was so focused on performance, I probably underplayed the value of self compassion. And for anyone who's just about to switch off because they, it's uh, it's self compassion, it's really just being looking at yourself the way you would a good mate. So if a friend of mine is is struggling and they've you know had a death in their family or something serious i'm not going and saying suck it up get on with it why aren't you why are you so weak but often that's how we talk to ourselves that's how we try and get ourselves to do things like you're terrible at this you know it's not conscious but it's the way we do it and self-compassion is a very it's about taking that weight off and figuring out how we can be easier on ourselves to actually get things done and being being kind uh, so that's been, although it's not you in the field, it's probably, I think, 80s, it started becoming, the research started piling up and there'd be 100 and something studies now on self-compassion and the value it brings, even performance. I think I saw 30 studies on performance and self-compassion. It it predicts performance better than confidence. So if you think of an athlete going, I need to be more confident, that actually predicts performance a lot less than whether they're self-compassionate or not. It 
Self-compassion predicts whether they're going to pick up after a failure, whether if they miss, miss a shot, they're going to miss the next one. Like it's, it's a much better metric. And I would say the challenge is practically applying it, figuring out how you can learn that skill. And there's a couple of quick, quick steps that people can use. So if you have a look up Kristen Neff online, she's got some really great resources, all free. Um, there's plenty of good resources, but yeah, for men, I would say that's number one. If you can learn that skill, mm -hmm. it's a huge one. Interesting. I guess it's about finding some kind of balance. I think probably many of us mm -hmm. feel like we, you know, need to give ourselves a talking to from time to time. But yeah, um, yeah that, I guess that I, I know from my own experience that can be self-destructive if you go too far down that path. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, but as you said, probably as men, some of us um, are not really comfortable talking about. Um, yeah, this this kind of idea. Mm. So uh, I've been, um, yeah, watching some of your content online. I think that's a, a fairly new venture for you, um, is it? Um, creating content to share with people. Um, mm. Yeah, what what are your plans there? Is, are you looking to develop this more and work with more people digitally? Yeah, appreciate you asking about it too. It's, it's something where it's been in the pipeline for a long time, wanting to share this information and having this conversation today you can tell some of it is is a is hard to understand in certain ways unless you can get metaphors and story and ways that people can connect with it it's it's intuitive once you get it but it's hard to explain so that's why my videos i'm doing the videos is to like get people to connect with this information and make it more readily accessible and in the long term i'd really like to find the right fit of people so not it's, my support is not for everyone, but for people who are probably looking for a different way to look at their mind and to take action, I'd like to work with some of those people one-on-one -on -one and, yeah, get some outcomes. I'm really passionate about the mental health field, but I think my shift has been I like seeing performance outcomes too. I like seeing people achieve their goals and get where they want to go while also being the person they want to be at the same time. Yeah, I think you're doing a really good job of just studies following your content. And it's a challenge, isn't it? If uh, if it's something new to you, it's a challenge putting yourself out there. Um, but I, I like how you've um, explained some concepts uh, very succinctly. Um, short videos that are breaking down one or two ideas at a time. Um, having said that, though, uh, I've, a couple of those videos I've gone back and watched a few times because... Um, they do require, in, in my opinion, you know, they require a little bit of thinking about for them to be, <laughs> uh, you know, more actionable uh, in in your own life. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, well done <laughs> on getting started with that. Um, yeah, so what is the best place for people to uh, connect with you or find out more about what you're doing? I've, uh, I'm one of those people that went off social media a few years ago, so I'm only just getting back into a few things. But if you're interested, I can put my um, YouTube link underneath. So if anyone wants to have a look at the the content, um, they can have a bit of chat there. I'm not. I don't have a website. I don't do any of that sort of stuff at the moment. So Telegram is probably a good way to get in touch with me for the people. But yeah, look, if you're following me and you want to reach out and put a comment, that's probably the best way. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll be happy to uh, share those links and put them in the description. <laughs> Um, okay, so I think we probably better wrap it up there. I really appreciate you um, joining me today. Um, perhaps we could uh, do this again. I think there's probably quite a few um, other subjects in this field that we could dig into a little bit more. But I think mm. um, we've covered quite a few things there, and hopefully there's some 
uh, thought-provoking or even actionable um, material in there. Um, so, yep. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Thanks, Imran. Awesome, brother.